0: Welcome to the Stay of the Markets podcast. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com.
1: I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com.
0: And our very special guest is Grant Williams. He's the author of the book, Things That Make You Go Hmm, co-founder of Real Vision, and host of the Grant Williams podcast and newsletter. Grant Williams, welcome to the show.
2: Gentlemen, thank you for having me. It's a, it's a
0: pleasure
1: so gran how uh, i'm trying to think what where are where our past first began i suspect it's probably exchanging commentaries getting on for probably 20 years ago
2: it's yeah yeah i mean it's, it's terrifying whenever you well, think i can't believe
1: how how, how, much time, how much how much how much water has flown under the bridge but uh,
2: and yeah you- no it's uh yeah it's got to be getting on it's got to be getting on that way which is it is kind of terrifying tim right so
1: how would you how would you describe yourself how would you describe yourself to someone who's is who's who's yet to 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 encounter your oeuvre and your sort of backstory
2: oh my lord how would i describe myself um uh frustrated pga tour golfer how's that <laughs> i think that's i think that's uh, arguably the most accurate description <laughs> i think of it. there are plenty of others
1: in terms of thematic <laughs> topicality i mean our, our show used to be about about finance and investment until sort of coronavirus took over about a year or well, certainly about six or seven months ago but from my perspective i i first got to know you as a well i guess as the as the author of there's a writer of a a, a new called cool things that make you go hmm
2: yes yes that that and that's probably how most people will know me prior to that I um I inhabited the world of uh, of equities um, equities convertible bonds I even traded JGBs back in the day when they had a yield
0: oh wow um,
2: but that was that it's was in back. the eighties uh, um, yeah so I I spent I spent thirty odd plus years in um, in various investment banks on the trading side uh, in in various ports of call all around the world. and then kind of um, through a whole set of bizarre circumstances, kind of fell ass backwards into into writing. I was I was never a writer. I was never someone that that felt any kind of hankering to do that. and um it just it just kind of happened organically, and uh, it's been, I have to say it's been ninety nine percent positive ever since I started doing it
1: is well, one of the reasons you've enjoyed the writing because it, it it helps this has been certainly my 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 experience because i've I've been writing for as long as I've been working so in in my case that's thirty years is is part of the enjoyment the network effect that you get to basically just to expand your network of contacts and in some cases friendships
2: yeah I mean, that has been an absolutely unbelievable benefit of doing this I have to say I mean, but it it, it you know, it wasn't I didn't have a grand plan I didn't think if I do X, then Y will happen. Um, I, as I say, I, I fell into it. I, I found, I enjoyed it. I found that people I- enjoyed the way I kind of approached it. And it, so it kind of just took on a life of its own, but, um, by far and away the, the I mean, look, I started it to, to try and help myself understand things better. I mean, mm. in all honesty, I, I figured that if I can, if I can think about all the topics I'm thinking about, all the kind of pieces of the jigsaw puzzle that I'm thinking about and put those together in a coherent fashion for other people to understand, then that means I understand it, if that makes any sense. Mm. And so that's really what it started out as was an exercise in, in, in understanding. Um, but by, as I say, by far and away that the, the best thing that will come out of it is, is the extraordinary group of people, um, I've met all around the world over the last you know 15 odd years, um, many of whom have become very, very dear friends. And and the knowledge that I've gained far outweighs the knowledge that I you know I've managed to put into the world. But you know, I guess that's really what we're all trying to do, right? The day you the day you figure you can teach the world more than you can learn, it's probably time to give up.
1: But that, that's a classic example of sort of two plus two making five, isn't it? That you have people perhaps like-minded. They're not necessarily agreeing on everything, but in the process of so the network effect and just conversations and discussions and theses being advanced and knocked back and and refined, everybody benefits from that.
2: Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. And one of the great shames over the last, you know, as as this process has evolved over the last handful of years, one of the great shames for me has been a very obvious um, loss of the ability for people to sit and disagree about things respectfully and, and to talk about why they see the world in a different way and and to stress test each other's arguments. But at the end of the day, acknowledge that, that nobody knows anything, right? Which we're, we're all trying to figure this out. And so my right or wrong answer is no more valid than your right or wrong answer. But together, um, you know, we may be able to both improve the quality of our own understanding of just about anything and, and the loss of that civil discourse, that, that ability. To to disagree with someone's point of view, but but not immediately write them off as as a loser or a fool or whatever the whatever the um, word du jour is, is y- 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 causes me great sadness. I have to say because I you know I I I've done hundreds of interviews over the last seven or eight years, and I go into every single one assuming that I'm the dumbest guy in the conversation, and that, and that's that's worked out very well for me, and I, and I've I've learned. As I said, an awful lot more than I've taught, and and frankly, I wouldn't have it any other way. I've ha- I've had my assumptions challenged. Um, I've challenged others' assumptions, but always respectfully. And, and there's a you know there's a way to do it so that if you if you feel it's getting contentious, it doesn't need to. But today, people seem to want you to push until you get into a big argument about something, which is just counterproductive. I, I just find whenever you have that kind of dynamic in a conversation. You get so much less out of the person you're talking to because they're immediately defensive and they and they don't like to be you know, challenged beyond a certain point and in a certain fashion. So I, I think I think we've got away from that that ability to have civil discourse. And, and, I, and I think it's a, a, just a tremendous shame.
1: What do you think drove that? What, what was the first thing that, that triggered your uh, ac- appreciation of that being a problem? For me, it would have been Brexit. Yeah, I,
2: I think I think. I think Brexit was certainly a big one. Although uh, you know, I haven't lived in the UK for a, a long, long time now, so I was really looking at it from afar. Um, you know, I would I would spend time in the UK during all the campaigning, and, and you could you could see how stridently the battle lines were drawn on both sides, and that the middle ground was basically non-existent. You could definitely see that. But what, but when I sit and think about it in a broader context, and I try and work out why has this happened, um, you know, I I, I can't. I can't come down anywhere else other than social media and the echo chambers mm. that it, it it deliberately creates. You know, it, it, in order to drive engagement, it it constantly funnels you into these echo chambers that reinforce your own views because they know that the more you read about people that agree with you. Look, we're all guilty of that. We all like to be agreed with. We all like to find people who are simpatico with our ideas. We, we all we
1: want to be loved.
2: Yeah, of course we do. Of course we do. But, but that… You know that when I when I think about it that's where I can't help but lay the blame and the, and the thing that really worries me is that those those social media hooks uh, are deep now and and unless something is done somehow to to kind of walk that back I don't know how you do it I mean what we're seeing in Australia perhaps is the first sign of that um, but I think unless we can find a way to wean ourselves, and, and importantly, future generations off that those dopamine hits that Silicon Valley is so intent on delivering, I, I, I do fear that the, that the divide is going to get wider and the common ground narrower, which is, which is a tremendous shame.
0: You said that um, you've learned a lot from all the interviews that you've done. What's the biggest 180 you've done on your own investment beliefs from when you first started out to, to now?
2: I, I think those are temporal. You know, I, I think I think changes in beliefs. I, I've I've built a framework of how I think about investing.
0: What and is
2: that? Any and it, well, look, I'm I'm a I'm a value guy, right? I'm drawn to value investing, um, which which has been a very difficult place to be for for a number of years now
1: would you like um, to to just sorry to interrupt to define what how, how you define value because it, it, people that use these words but it's often unclear what they actually mean so how would you define a being a value well, investor
2: look to me I, I i look for things that are intrinsically cheap they're unloved they 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 have a tangible value there there are there are valuation methods that you can look at that don't require looking too far into the future you know all this this idea that company a is worth 100 billion dollars because one day they're going to make some money Mm. is anathema to me you know give me and and i don't want to fixate on gold mining because it's something that i've become known for but but it's the perfect example you know here are companies that that literally pull money out of the ground, and you can buy the finest gold miners in the world on somewhere between you know nine and twelve times PEs at the moment because nobody mm-hmm. loves them, nobody wants to own them, and and so I, you know that that is where my uh, kind of uh, bent has always been is looking for things that that produce that things that have real businesses that that have cash flows that have well run balance sheets that have. Quality management—you know—all the things that 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 used to be important in investing. Um, I, I'm still that guy, and so that that's my framework. So in terms of one eighties, Paul, I mean, I, I think really it's it's been moments in time where I've realised that you know I I need to sell the bulk of my gold mining positions, even though I think the companies are great and I think they're undervalued. I can see what's going on here, and, and, it, and it's time for me to be out of them for the time being. I, I don't, I'm not abandoning them, but that, but that ability to, to not be wedded to, to, to a, a company or a price at a moment in time um, has, has been a very important lesson to learn. And I think, um, I think anybody who's, who's invested in the precious metals markets, and we'll stay on that because it, 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 it's, it's such a great illustration of so many facets of this. Mm. I think anyone that's come into precious metals um, over the last twenty years, with a with a kind of a, a rudimentary understanding of the thesis for it, and has piled into gold mining stocks, thinking, "Well, they're printing money, therefore gold's going up. Therefore, I'm just going to own every gold mining company I can," has been taught an incredibly painful lesson. And and and, and of course, it's much deeper than that. You can't just uh, Uh, apply if x then y um it's if x and then brackets and all the algebraic functions you can possibly fit in between those brackets then y and figuring out what's in those brackets is always the difficult thing to do And and it requires the ability to sell things you believe you should own because of outside factors at a given point in time and at times it requires you to step in and buy things when the rest of the world is telling you you're an idiot and 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 I over the long term, I I I I don't want to do it any other way. I, I can see why people are buying Tesla. I can see why they're looking at the momentum and they think this stock is going up. But that's you know from my first days in the business, uh, this stock is going up has never been a good enough reason for me to buy it. I, you know I I just I just don't have that momentum investment gene in my body, and I and I understand. Uh, in some ways that's been to my detriment, but I, I, I just, I, I just wouldn't be happy buying something because
1: it's going up, you know, it's just not the way I'm built on a scale of one to 10 relative ten. to say, <laughs> I was just, that just is taking awesome. a flyer. That is awesome. That is absolutely awesome. Okay. you're <laughs> return, <Paul. laughs> Cause you've clearly anticipated my, my question, my question, For what it's worth for, for those, for those who are still cr- struggling to catch up with the rest of us, um, on a scale of one to ten, relative to the first dot com bubble, how mental is what we're now living through? Yeah, I think you're allowed think, to use the same answer.
2: Yeah, no, look, the, the same. Well, actually, I'd, I'd probably go Spinal Tap and turn it up to eleven. <laughs> <Exactly>. but, um, <laughs> but, but, but 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 again, you know, I, I think perspective is everything, right? And and you and I, uh, uh, or you guys and I, are old enough to have experienced that firsthand. But you know, I remember being i was living and working in in manhattan during that that blow off of the dot-com bubble and i remember kind of having a grasp that it that it didn't feel right because of my experience living in tokyo at the end of the, the nikkei bubble you know and, and that one i had no clue what was going on I just you, didn't. You've,
1: you've experienced an ombarasta richesse of, of bubbles in your time you <laughs> been in the right place or the wrong place at the right time
2: well yeah or, or, or i'm an albatross it depends which way you want to look at it but um but you know that that japan bubble i I got caught up in all the hoopla around me and i didn't I didn't pause to think about what made sense and 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 why what was happening was happening I just got wrapped up in it so when two thousand came around, chastened by that experience in Japan and, and understanding and recognizing two thousand for what it was, again I, you know I was very early in in calling it what it was and 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 i missed out the the kind of blow off top but i i've I've never once regretted that but now looking at what we're seeing with the benefit of that hindsight and, and i think most importantly tim that experience of having actually lived and worked and traded through that time i think i think anyone that did that can see this for what it is can see this for the most remarkable bubble that that Any of us have ever seen, and and I suspect will ever seen. But in the moment, there are always enough people who don't see it for what it what it is. There are always enough people who haven't lived and breathed one of these things before, to to get caught up like I did in Japan in the eighties, and and to and to just follow the herd, follow the momentum, and and this is why you know I just finished writing a piece about the 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 GameStop phenomenon. I I, I listened to your guys' podcast about it last week, and yeah, having, as I said, having been through com, of course you understand what's happened here, uh, but of course you understand that this narrative about Main Street sticking it to Wall Street is just not what's happened. It, it, it it's, just, a cozy, is, it's
1: a it's a cosy myth.
2: Yeah, of course it is, and and short sellers, brackets, evil short sellers, provide a fantastic straw man that the the world has been conditioned to. To this Pavlovian reaction of of placing the word evil in front of short sellers whenever they hear it, because the language has always been that way, um, but that's not the case. You know, the people who made money out of GameStop, I hate to tell everybody, were Wall Street, mm. right? There's a, there's, a, there's a hedge fund called Senvest, who who you know, it's the perfect illustration. They they did the work, they they saw the investment case for GameStop and you know, how a change in the business could matter and how. Yes, there was a short squeeze, but again, this narrative of 140% short interest is not what it is made out to be. It doesn't mean that there was 40% naked short going out there. You know, there were shares lent out, um, borrowed, owned, and then lent out again. I mean, it's it, it, if you're inside the beast, you understand how this stuff can happen. But Senvest saw this, realized that there was propensity for a short squeeze to be impactful, but they also understood the value in the company if certain catalysts were met those catalysts were met the stock went up of course they never expected the the reddit frenzy to take place but it did and and they sold out their position for a 700 million dollar profit the day they saw elon musk tweet game stock that one word on his tweet because they understood that what would happen on the back of that one tweet by that one person, given his influence amongst retail investors, was going to give them an exit opportunity. And of course, they took it, they banked $700 billion, and they passed the shares on to retail investors, any of whom who bought them and held, because they figure one day the stock will get back to where it was, have lost 80 90% of their investment. Mm. And it's it's a tragedy that repeats through all of these cycles. Um and, and the narrative is always, you know, different, but, but this time we've had this idea that this is a main street revolution and, uh, you know, it, it breaks my heart to see these stories of retail investors. It breaks my heart to see, you know, security guards who, who, who didn't want to touch the IRA. So they took credit card loans out to yeah, buy game stock yeah. at 350
0: yeah.
2: and, and the suicide notes that you're seeing written by people who lost $180,000 in, you know, it's, it's heartbreaking. But but that is unfortunately what happens when you decide to play in a game where the rules are very complex and, and the Robin Hood restriction of trading, again, anyone in the business understands why that happened, uh, could see it coming, frankly, given the activities of January the 28th. But of course, Robin Hood has been made out to be the bad guy. Uh, and who've they been out to made out to be the bad guy by? Well, a everybody, but most importantly and most notably, again, by Elon Musk and Chemath, um, I can never pronounce his surname, well, We know we know who
1: you mean. We know who you mean.
2: Yeah. But but you know, those guys have been the two guys hauling Robin Hood over the coals publicly and and you know, Musk asking uh, Vlad Tenev, the CEO of Robin Hood in a clubhouse thing, you know, did you throw your customers under the bus? No. He was forced to do what he did because you inspired a trading frenzy, as you knew you would with that one-word stock. Chamath, meanwhile, who's piling on, just happens to be taking the biggest competitor to Robinhood, Public, Virus back. He's got a vested interest in this. So, you know, I, I, the sad thing is that that the people who um, Ben Hunt so delightfully terms raccoons, who just know how the game is played. Um, they They know how to to use social media, half of them have been the architects of it to drive public opinion to to create public narratives and to move stories down avenues that are ultimately friendly to them and I think it's a great shame. um yeah you know, I really do, and as I said, my heart just goes out to all those retail investors who who felt like they were. Uh, taking part in a cause, a justifiable cause, given the inequality that's built up over the last 20 years. You know, the cause was just, but the means of executing that cause was flawed. It wasn't what they were told, and the outcome, unfortunately, is not the one they desired.
0: Didn't we effectively see a a time-lapse of a bull market just appear in a very short time frame? Because that's ultimately how it works at all market tops.
2: Yeah, uh, do you know, what, Paul? That's that's a b- a beautiful way of putting it. It's absolutely right. In a microcosm, that was a bull market. You had the stealth phase when the Senvests of the world and the and the and the Keith Gills of the world were doing their work and buying their shares. Um, you know, then you had some more hedge funds getting in. Then you had this blow off phase where retail pile in, and then you have the crash. I mean, and it, and the amazing thing is it all happened in the space of a matter of weeks. Um, and it's the perfect illustration of the broader market, I think.
0: And we're now at a point where people like, you know, Tim and I have been looking at valuations of, of um, the broader markets for a long time and wondering how long this is all going to last for. And not, not because the markets are high per se, but when you've got interest rates effectively at zero, you know you've got an unsustainable situation because at some point interest rates have to go up. And in doing so, either stimulus has to be reined in because governments can't ultimately continue to afford just to print money, just to to give stimulus all the time um, because there's no way of backing off from that. So at some point, the market has to re- stop functioning in a way that is normal. So if we go back to the dot-com boom, at least interest rates played a part in keeping investors honest you had a choice of getting a yield or investing in something that was risky at the moment with no tangible yield to be found anywhere all roads lead to the stock market
2: yeah it's a, it's a great point you know i i've i've spoken about this before but i remember in 2000 and i think uh, 10 11 12 somewhere around there i was giving a, a presentation in seattle and I and I put up a chart. It was the simplest chart I've ever done. And I've built some complicated charts in my time. Um, and I simply had two bars on this chart. And one of them was, uh, if you if you had ten million dollars in cash, and you put it in two year treasuries, in two thousand and seven, you were earning half a million dollars in interest in two year treasuries. So it's zero risk. You've you've worked hard all your life. You've built your nest egg. You can invest it with zero risk, and you can earn half a million dollars a year in income. That's how the world is supposed to work for people who spent their life trying to you know, trying to secure their future. Four years later, that same ten million in treasuries would have earned you thirteen thousand dollars. And that, for me, that one chart when I when I put it up, a guy came up to me afterwards, and and his face was white as a sheet, and he said, "Look, you know, I." I that chart really hit home to me because you know, this is a guy who'd spent his life. He had a he had a string of uh, shoe, shoe shops in the in the Pacific Northwest in America, and he told me that he and his wife had always said if they could ever sell their business for ten million dollars, they were going to sell it, and and you know retire and and do the travelling they'd all wanted to do and 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 you know live their life, and and he said that they'd done that, and and yet he he didn't feel rich they, they couldn't afford to go on holidays they couldn't and of course it was because that that safe income had been taken away from them so when you when you look at the world now and what you said is interesting paul when you talk about interest rates have to go up again i wonder you know i wonder about that they are they are going to want to go up they are going to try to go up but i think the point you were hint- hinting at there is the important one is that they can't go up because if they go up very far, and, and when you talked about interest rates playing a part before, they did because you know the, the difference between 5% and 6% or 6% and 4.5% is inconsequential compared to the difference between 0 and 2%. Um, and so given what's happened, given the extraordinary amount of debt that's been taken on by these governments, the servicing of that debt becomes mathematically impossible at you know somewhere like three three and a half percent it takes up such a, an enormous amount of tax revenues that it's unsustainable so I agree that the market is going to want interest rates to go higher I agree we are going to find ourselves at a moment in time where that is the path of least resistance the question is what do the central banks and governments of the world do at that point because you know all their chips are in the middle of the table now They've, so, they've got the chips, they've got their car keys, they've got everything in the middle of the table. Right? So here's
1: there. so here's my thesis, and uh, no, no, I don't disagree with anything you just said. So Paul says interest rates have to go up, but we, we kind of all agree sort of tacitly that they can't. My experience, driven primarily from seeing the exchange rate mechanism, the ERM crisis, Sterling's ethnic cleansing from the ERM in 1992, leads me to the following idea, following following theme. Central banks and governments can kick around the bond market till the cows come home. Central banks and governments can largely kick around stock market valuations till the cows come home. The one market that's too big for the world's central banks and governments combined to kick around is the currency market. Yes. Ergo, the one market that will act as some kind of escape valve for people who want to express a view about, let's say inflation, uh, is going to be foreign exchange. So yep. my conclusion for this year is that whatever else happens, we're going to start seeing some tremendous, tremendously wild volatility in FX rates. Uh, I don't know when and over what period of time, but that 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 would be the trade I would be uh, braced for, if you like. So my follow-on question is then, and I assume the answer is yes. Have you seen Michael Burry's comments about hyperinflation that were published on Zero Hedge, and? If so, to what extent do you think that we are now in like extra, extra Fergie time of extra time?
2: <laughs> yeah, well, look, I, I have to say, Tim, I, I have reached precisely the same conclusion as you, that ultimately, they can implement yield curve control, they can implement all kinds of things to, to stop bond markets, and to an extent, equity markets, you know, we, we haven't reached the the, the Corroda breach yet where they step in and start buying ETFs and equities, but but they are at the very least going to be forced to make that decision at some point. I, I have no doubt about that. And so like you, I feel like the currency is is ultimately going to be the only place where this manifests itself properly. Um, I, I saw Michael Burry's comments. I I, I As always to Michael Burry, they made uh, an extraordinary amount of sense. Um, I think anyone that hasn't read the book I think they refer to there was Yen's O Parsons, Jens
1: Parsons, the Dying, Dying of Money, money
2: which yeah. which now if you try and buy that on Amazon, you'll probably find it will cost you thousand dollars, four
1: hundred and fifty quid or something. Right, yeah.
2: but but you but there are PDFs available on the internet. You can download it as a PDF, and I and I would strongly encourage people to do that. Not just that, but um, but uh, Adam Ferguson's When Money Dies, yeah. which is which is another tremendous account of the Weimar hyperinflation and. It, it actually, it's worth reading both of them because it hammers home just how extraordinary these things can be. And and most importantly, how quickly they play out. And I, and I think, Tim, I, I saw that Zero Edge article too. And the, the thing that I came away thinking about was um, Michael Hartnett's chart from Bank of America of the speed with which um, inflation and monetary velocity picked up. You know, they were negative one year. And I think positive to the tune of hundred percent the following year, and that's that's the kind of knife edge that that these these lawmakers and policymakers are dancing on. You know, it 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 can happen that quickly because inflation is an expectations game. Inflation is a sentiment and a mindset game, and and when the crowd gets agitated in either direction, yeah, we're seeing it in in. What to many is a good direction now. They're all getting greedy, um, except, and again, I, I talk about this all the time. When we see these periods of greed, not everybody gets greedy, right? Yeah, I'm not mm. greedy. I'm not chasing this stuff. I know you're not chasing it. So greed is is something that, while it's powerful, it doesn't envelop everybody. But fear, we all get fearful. Mm. Th- th- nobody's not afraid. Um, and I interviewed Jeff Gundlach a number of years ago, and he said something that stuck with me then, you know, he talked about how powerful greed, uh, and fear were, but he said, you know, there's something more powerful than both. And that's need." He said, if you need to do something, you don't have a choice. And and that has stuck with me because on the, on the investor side, people are going to need to do something. But more concerningly, I think on the policymaking side, they are also going to be needing to do things and what they're going to need to do are the kind of things that are abhorrent to any free market capitalist you know capital controls i suspect Mm. are in our future i think wealth taxes are baked in the cake at this point you know all these things that are at some point going to be the only way to either try and stabilize the currency or fill the massive hole in coffers are going to have to be tried
1: i was with um i was on a a chat with some colleagues slash um, on an economic perspective uh, last night. And one of the gentlemen in question, who, who shall remain nameless, pointed out that the imposition of capital controls is inconsistent with the survival of the city as a foreign exchange revenue generator for the United Kingdom.
2: Yeah. Yeah, but 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 look, I I, I suspect, you know, if we, if we go back to Bretton Woods, uh, you know, we go back to 1940, whatever it was, I forget now, 7, was it? Mm-hmm. I think they had that conference. Um what you had there was tremendous coordination because everybody was in the same boat. And so well,
1: I, are you saying that basically this time it's going to be every man for himself?
2: Well, I, I think, I think there's going to be two phases to this. I think there is going to be a recognition that listen, we are all in the same boat here. We have all blown out our budgets. We've all borrowed and spent way more than we can afford. We all have to kind of come together and come up with a Bretton Woods Two or Plaza Accord Two or something. We have to come up with that. I think that will be the beginnings of this. But I think you're right, human nature dictates that at some point someone's going to say, "You the know devil what?
1: or devil take the hindmost."
2: yeah, exactly right. exactly right. and and it's so it's a multi-stage process, but that that's how I kind of see it playing out.
1: There's a quote from Parson that I felt obliged to to retweet earlier once I'd seen the Burry thing, which I'll just read in full. Everyone loves an early inflation. The effects at the beginning of an inflation are all good. There is steepened money expansion, rising government spending, increased government budget deficits, booming stock markets, and spectacular general prosperity, all in the midst of temporarily stable prices. Everyone benefits and no one pays. That is the early part of the cycle. In the later inflation, on the other hand, the effects are all bad. The government may steadily increase the money inflation in order to stave off the later effects, but the later effects patiently wait. In the terminal inflation, there is faltering prosperity, tightness of money, falling stock markets, rising taxes, still larger government deficits and still roaring money expansion. Now accompanied by soaring prices and the ineffectiveness of all traditional remedies, everyone pays and no one benefits. That is the full cycle of every inflation.
2: It's so true right and, and that's why that book and, and Adam Ferguson's books are so important to read because anyone that sits and reads them will have that aha moment.''ll we'll, we'll realize that that what we're seeing now is is as old as the hills. This has happened so many times before but but it's only an understanding of history that allows you to realize what comes next because yes, in the moment it feels great. It does feel great. The stock market's going up. Everybody's making money. Um, you know, the Bitcoin crowd are telling everyone to have fun staying poor. There's hubris everywhere. It, it's always the same, unfortunately. Uh, you've, just, that,
1: you've, you know, you've, you've just mentioned the B word. So where do you stand on Bitcoin?
2: Oh, boy. That's my bad. I shouldn't have done that. You know?
0: <laughs> it was going to come anyway. We we're going to ask you. I, I know, <laughs> I know, I know. But,
2: but you know, I, think, I figured we, we could do this at the end. And I could pretend that I'd lost my Skype connection. Look, I, do you know what? I... I um. I I struggle. I, I I think anyone who has spent time studying precious metals instinctively understands the case for Bitcoin, right? I, I think the the case for both is so similar as to be almost identical. So a, as a as a sound money guy, as as a as an advocate of gold, I get it. I totally is, understand.
1: As a libertarian, dare I say?
2: Yeah, yeah. No, I, exactly right. And as a libertarian, I, I get it. I totally get it. Uh, there, there are a couple of things that I, I don't get. Um, you know, I don't understand uh, this idea that governments will allow a competing currency, particularly given the future we've just mapped out. You know, there is going to come a point in time where, if we're looking for escape valves from current multiple currency collapses, Bitcoin offers that. And if the governments cannot allow anyone to escape, for obvious reasons, I just don't see how they don't just outlaw Bitcoin. And and and, and look, I, I I preface every single conversation I have with Bitcoin with the fact that my understanding of it compared to the Bitcoin maximalists is rudimentary. I make no bones about that, right? I don't understand it as much as you, but I don't need to because I'm not going to throw myself full-time into that Bitcoin world. Um, you know, our mutual friend, Tim Tony Deedon, said it perfectly to me. He said, you know, I I wish everybody well. I hope everybody gets very rich with this Bitcoin thing, but it's just not suitable for me. And that's how I feel about it. It's not suitable for me because there are parts of it I don't understand. And even with gold, I understand that there is a, a chance to have gold confiscated. I get that because it's happened before. It happened in 1933 with the Executive Order 6102. Anyone that's looked at gold knows that. Um, and so I think with that, you can you can think about it and think, well, okay, if this happens, what are the chances of gold being confiscated globally simultaneously? And one could argue that you can sensibly assume that gold being confiscated in somewhere like Singapore, for example, or Switzerland, is is a far lower probability than gold potentially being confiscated in the United States, for example.
1: Where it's happened before.
2: Where it's happened before, so so one can at least hold one's gold in a jurisdiction which one thinks might put one slightly ahead of the pack of dogs. Right? There are things you can do to mitigate that. Bitcoin, to me, is something that if 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 it's B- made, B-
1: bitcoin in, gets thrown under the bus first.
2: I, I think so. I, I think so. I, and again, I don't know. I don't want to. I don't. I don't want the aggravation that comes with getting into the bitcoin hmm. arena because it's as I say, it's just not suitable for me it's just not something i'm interested enough in to get into those conversations you know i, I moderated a conversation between uh, mike green who's a who's a bitcoin bear and nick carter who's a bitcoin bull and, and we managed against all the odds to have a very respectful debate about it and and both guys acquitted themselves extremely well um i don't know if anybody's mind was changed but it was it was good to have both sides lay out their 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 thoughts without the the kind of simplistic rhetoric of the meme culture we exist in at the moment. But I still haven't had my fears about what happens to Bitcoin allayed, certainly not to buy some here. I've owned Mm. Bitcoin in the past. I own a tiny bit of Bitcoin now. But I don't, I don't even look at it, to be honest with you. I don't even look at the – I mean, you can't avoid it, but I don't – it's not like I check it every day to see, oh, has it reached a certain level because I don't need to. Every every $500 it goes up, I get 300 tweets telling me that we've now crossed the 53,742 barrier. Um, so I, I, I get it. I totally understand what it represents. I think what it represents is admirable, but it's just not it, – It
1: falls into the too-difficult-to-analyze to, to, to analyze box.
2: Yeah, and to, and too painful, frankly. I, I, yeah, I, yeah. You know, I, I I I'm an Englishman, Tim, and and I and I I hate incivility. Right? It just it cuts me to the quick. And so going into that world, uh, and and listen, there, there's a video online which uh, someone sent me last week, which you really ought to watch. It's it's by a guy called Michael Brackets Bitstein. Close brackets Goldstein. <laughs> And it was a, a speech he gave at a Bitcoin conference. I'm not sure when, but to a, to a room of you know maybe 50 people, and he talks about the strategy, and it is that of of the Bitcoin pump, and how to make the price go up. and it And it's it's really quite confronting. I I, I, I mean, it sounds dramatic, but it's actually true. I I struggled to sleep after watching this, mm. not because I was frightened, but because it was running around my head about. A, how toxic this was, but B, and perhaps most concerningly, how effective it was. Um, and I, i'll I'll send you the link so you can include it in your in your show notes. Thank you. but it, but it's it's a half an hour video, and it's really worth watching because it explains a lot of the the real um, vicious rhetoric and the and the and the shaming of non-bitcoin um, adherents. Uh, and, and it really explained a lot to me. And it, and it made me want to distance myself from it further, I'm afraid.
0: People who think of Bitcoin as a religion have really got to just like step aside because it's not, this is, if you're going to be involved in the financial markets, you've got to have a critical mind of anything, even even more so if you own it. So there's, there's no point saying that you've got to try and get other people on board for some crusade. But if we take a different tact and look at, what the governments might do, and we think of, think of this as technology, could it be that what the governments want to do and have made some noises about potentially, um, wouldn't they want to actually get this as you know? Could we have a dollar Bitcoin? Could we have a Sterling central
1: Bitcoin? bank central bank crypto?
0: And and yeah. and could that could that explain? I've wondered very often whether this explains what they're currently doing with fiat currencies, because it's almost like a no-lose situation. We may think that they, they're going to take this one step at a time and, you know, deal with the problems of the economy as they come. But perhaps they're planning this all along. Perhaps they're just saying, well, look, why don't we just print as much money and, you know, we'll get a bit of inflation. And if it all goes wrong, screw it. We'll just we'll just write all the currency off and move over to a cryptocurrency.
2: Yeah, look, it, it, it could very well possibly be, uh, the way they think this thing will play out. I mean, they, things never tend to play out, particularly complex things like that, the way you expect them to. Um, but I, I think I I did a podcast, um, recently with, uh, my buddy, Bill Fleckenstein and a guy called James Aitken, who, uh, is one of those rarities an extraordinarily bright and erudite Australian, Tim. I mean, who would have thought, um, I can well, we, say we live in
1: a world of miracles and wonder. So.
2: <laughs> I have an Australian passport, so I'm allowed to say that.
0: Uh-huh. Um, well, we, we've had a but, great guest on who's Australian. Um, well, well
2: but 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 James is, I mean, he's he's just a brilliant, brilliant mind. And um, he came on, did a podcast. Uh, and again, I'll give you the link to this because I think it's it's worth listening to. The last part of that conversation, uh, James talked to us about the Chinese um Digitalized Currency Electronic Payment System, DCEP. And he explained, and James is not someone given to hyperbole. He's a very, very pragmatic, deep, deep thinker um, who counts some of the biggest um, institutions, uh, corporates in the world as his clients. And he, in his own words, he said, this is the biggest potential change to the financial system since Bretton Woods. And he he explained why. And And I won't preempt that. I'll let I'll let James talk you through it. But this this idea of digital currencies is absolutely coming. And and from what James said, and, and as I said, he's a thoughtful guy who digs into these things deeply, the Chinese are, you know, have lapped the rest of the world and are running away with this thing. And 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 the likes of the United States and um and others in the West have belatedly realized what's happening here and are desperately trying. To catch up, so so central bank digital currencies at this point, I think, are an absolute certainty. Um, it really is one of the only ways they can effectively impose negative interest rates in the way they need to, without the escape valves being being triggered. And so, if you if you if you believe that, and James makes an extraordinarily convincing argument for it, um, then then you have to think that at some point. Uh, cryptocurrencies outside the purview of governments become a threat to make the maintenance of stability of the system, and, and they may
1: I, also go after gold.
2: Yeah, no, absolutely they could. Yeah, absolutely they could. I mean, at this point, nothing is is out of bounds. I think because the the problems are so large. The, you know, the 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 one thing about gold, I think, is that I think if you try to convert your gold for cash in a stampede. There's always going to be someone who will take your gold from you. Mm. Uh, I think if everyone's trying to get out of their gold, yes, the price is going to fall, but there will be plenty of of bids on the way down that will allow you to kind of stagger step that fall. I think if if Bitcoin sees something uh, is, is made illegal or outlawed, which which is you know the big question I have, what if they say okay, it's illegal to buy Bitcoin? That's all they have to do. They don't have to say anything else. They don't even have to say it's illegal to 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 hold Bitcoin. Even if they just make it illegal to buy, well, everyone's going to try and sell it mm. because they'll worry about what's coming next. And I don't see, uh, apart from certain vested interests in the Bitcoin community wanting to maintain the price, I don't see where the bids are going to come for it. I mean, we, when we've seen those those four, I, I I don't ever remember in my readings of history gold losing 85 90 percent of its value three times in a five- year mm. period. Maybe it did 6 thousand years ago. it's possible but um, but I worry about that and so look as I said, I, I hope everybody gets rich from holding Bitcoin. It's just not suitable for me.
1: to, to, to continue this thread do you, to what extent do you have faith that that governments will maintain a, a support for the rule of law and the rule of private property?
2: Yes, a great question. I mean, it's a really good question. I I I think that the nature of the problems the world faces are such that the most extreme, and I'm going to put this in air quotes, solutions Mm. will necessarily be considered. And Mm. ultimately, you know, if if you look at this uh, this 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 build back better and the great reset that they're desperately swamping us all with, in the Mm. hopes that it becomes a fixture, you know, this idea that We've seen the future. You'll own nothing and be happier. That, when I read that, I had a shiver go down my spine because mm. that is, that is a, that is a, a dog whistle. Right? Well, a that good, is. a
1: good working definition of Klaus Schwab is, is a shiver looking for a spine to run down? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, he found one here. That's for sure. Um, but, but look, I, th- I think that to me is a dog whistle. And, and this idea that if we can get people to embrace the idea that they'll own nothing, but be happier, uh, throw in a bit of MMT, throw in a bit of UBI, you know, we can create this world for you where you're going to be happier. If we can put that in people's heads, reinforce it and get enough people who, who, who have been left behind by this, this prosperity train, which left the station when all the boomers jumped on it and, and is still chugging away. It makes the imposition of some of those you know, almost unthinkable outcomes that much simpler because at the end of the day, you just need constituency and, and there is a way to get that over time or at least get closer over time. So that when you, when you do start to subvert the rule of law, the rule of private property rights, there are at least some people who will stand up and say, yes, we think this is a good idea because that's what you need, right? If it's a unilateral argument, everyone says "This is a terrible idea. You're screwed. Mm. If you've, if you've, manage to cultivate a generation who will side with you and say, yeah, we think this is the right way. Well, at least then you have a debate and you've got a chance of putting this through. Um, And and I I do, I do worry about these extreme outcomes, Tim, an awful lot.
1: Uh, What I'm getting from this is, uh, which in a sense is kind of, is is talking, talking our book as well is you simply can't be too careful. In other words, you, you can't be diversified enough. You can't, go to enough lengths to try and protect your capital. You can't own enough different types of things. You can't be in too many different jurisdictions for custody, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This leads me to a rather, let's just say gloomy, but certainly just realistic or perhaps pragmatic way of thinking. You just cannot be too careful now.
2: Yeah, I, I think you're right. I, I, think, I think what we saw in... The sort of in the eighties and and certainly the nineties through to the kind of mid nineties when things started to get a bit dicey, you didn't need to be careful. You know, we had tailwinds everywhere. Um, The late nineties was a huge short-term tailwind, but it was clearly a bubble, and then we suffered the headwinds. uh, You know, from that point on, two thousand eight, the same thing. But, But there, there have been periods where. You didn't need to be careful. And and the danger is that for anyone who's who's spent their life in, in an era and and let's face it, in a country where you haven't had to worry about expropriation of capital, expropriation of assets. Um, and anyone who lives in many Latin American countries will understand this only too well. Mm. They do take these precautions because they've seen what happens. Uh, th- th- there's there's a layer of of effort that you have to go to now to to try and secure, uh, your assets, secure your, your, your savings that hasn't been necessary. And so it's easy to think it won't be necessary, but I think now is the time to, at the very least, and I I talk about this a lot at the very least, consider outcomes that you once thought were impossible, Mm. because I think the impossible is no longer impossible. And when the impossible moves to the possible it's time to consider it because that move from the impossible to the possible is the first step on the road to the probable and if you're if you're a day late in thinking about this and trying to at least uh put whatever protection you can in place for your capital if you're 24 hours late it doesn't matter. It's it, mm. it it's over. So I, I think it beholds it behooves everybody to to think about this stuff now. And and just if you think it's not a risk, that's fine. That's absolutely fine. But but don't just not bother to think about these extreme outcomes because they're they're pie in the sky. Because they were pie in the sky, but they're not
1: anymore. In in light of, of, of all of this content, would you describe yourself as medium term optimistic or medium term pessimistic?
2: Look, I think it. I think it depends. I I think it. it, I I don't think it's it's easy anymore to be blanket optimistic or blanket pessimistic. You know, I think I think there are always
1: these are are conditional. uh, Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. I mean, I I think it.
2: it, it, It'll amaze people to know. I'm an optimistic guy. Mm. I mean, I'm very cautious because I've I've worked hard for thirty five years, and and I, I'm not, in any great hurry. To try and double my money on a get-rich-quick scheme, um, I'm much more interested in protecting the future I've worked so hard to build than I am in in throwing a few more logs on the fire. And, I, and I, there's a, there's a quote in Wall Street um, which which kind of misses a lot of people. They always go back to the greed is good speech and, and you know, Blue Horseshoe loves Anacortes Steel and all those kind of iconic quotes. But there's a there's a part of it at the end where I think Daryl Hannah says to Charlie Sheen, she says, you know having money and losing it is worse than never having had it at all. And it, and it's yeah. such a true statement, um, that I think anyone who's been fortunate enough to, to, to make hay in this crazy bull market who doesn't sit back and think to you me, know, I, I, I was talking to a friend of mine who, this is a perfect example, who has a, who has a friend, a young guy who's in his mid twenties, he's been mining Bitcoin. Um, and he owns uh, you know, uh, enough Bitcoin for a 25-year-old to be wealthy. He's not mm. buying Lambos, and he's not you know, doing all that stuff. But he has enough money to pay off his house. Mm. And my friend is basically imploring him to pay off his house. Say, so mm. look, you'll still have a chunk of your Bitcoin left, but pay off your house and i've heard two or three of these stories or almost identical people who have friends that've got bitcoin and saying look just pay your house off if nothing else and of course the response from everyone who's had that same put to them is no 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 i'm hanging on because bitcoin's going to go to a million dollars and and it's 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 that mindset it's that Wild-eyed optimism, which is which is wonderful, right? It's wonderful. I'm sure you and I were both like that, Tim Harder. That may be for people to believe, <laughs> but but you know, the t- the chance to be able to own your home free and clear without any debt by selling an intangible object that you've you've acquired by having your computer running in the background is such an extraordinary concept. But what's more extraordinary is the idea that you wouldn't want to do that because I'm going to get richer.
1: Well, I'm going to see your Wall Street quote and raise you by a fool and his money are lucky enough to get together in the first place.
2: Yes, 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 yes. That was another one. That's exactly right. That's exactly right.
0: (laughs) So, looking forward, what areas of the markets are you most worried about, if that's the right word? And what areas are you most interested in?
2: Well, I, th- I think the one thing that's that's come out of this, um, this series of podcasts I've done with Bill, the Endgame, um, has been the importance of this inflation deflation debate, and it's it's been really interesting to have these conversations because we what we found is you know a, a mutual friend of all of ours, Russell Napier, mm. um, you know Lacey Hunt, Dave Rosenberg, uh, Paul Singer. We've had some fantastic minds involved in this conversation. And there's no consensus. They, you know, Lacey Hunt has been a deflationist for 40 years. He remains a staunch deflationist, unless and until, as he said, the Fed make their um, a balance sheet legal tender. If that happens, he said, I'm instantly in the inflation train. So I think that's something for people to watch. Russell, as you guys well know, after chatting to him not that long ago, is now off the deflation trade. After He's 20- in the inflation
1: years. camp, isn't he?
2: Yeah, and, he, and he's, yeah. he's staunchly in the inflation camp, which – Again, for me, that's a huge alarm bell. If someone mm. with with the depth of knowledge and and the gravitas of Russell is making that, people need to take that seriously. Um, disagree with him all you want, but don't write it off. David Rosenberg.
1: The reason I would sorry, sorry uh, the reason okay. I would in, interrupt uh, just on that on that point is that the reason I I rate Russell Napier as highly as I do is because he's perhaps the only strategist I know that's also a financial historian. Correct. So it's. Yep. He's, he's, I mean, I, I remember attending his course several years ago, Practical History of Financial Markets, and you can't really beat people who've actually like done the historical work on this stuff, going back through the ages. Yeah, it,
2: it, because it's we so keep
1: the, the, because as as a as a species, we are kind of cursed that we just never learn learn from our mistakes. We don't appear never. to. Oh,
2: never, and and you know, it, it, as they say, right, that the the peril of those who. Don't know history, as they're doomed to repeat it, and it's so true. And and we will repeat it. We'll repeat it again. But but this but this inflation deflation debate is now, I think, arguably the most important thing to think about and the most important thing to have a plan for, because we're we're talking potentially the the, the secular shift from a forty-year regime of, of deflationary pressure. To potentially, it won't be 40 years, but potentially multiple years of inflationary pressure. And and, and, and as I've said before, in, in other interviews I've done that, but by definition, if you've had a portfolio that's been set up and has done very well over the last number of years in a deflationary environment, you are not going to like what inflation does to that portfolio. Mm. So, so people need to think this through. They need to have an opinion on the inflation-deflation debate. Um, the timing is is the important part. But I think given where we are in the deflationary cycle, I think taking the inflation bet over the medium term, uh, you can be wrong and, and we may get one more knockout punch of deflation. It may happen. Um, but over the longer term, if you have that you know, five to 10-year time horizon, I think you can afford to be wrong in the short term, given the gains you, you've probably made over the last uh, number of years. Um, and be prepared for a, a real change. Because I, th- I think what we spoke about bring it back to inflation and, and how quickly this thing can happen, you know, l- you only have to listen to the central bankers talk about allowing inflation to run hot for a while. Obviously, they give no time frame about that. Um, and realistically, if you want to get back to an average 2% trend inflation, then you're going to have to let it run a little hot for what ten years to, to to get to an average of two percent, and inflation is an expectations game. Uh, I think, as we've said, you know, it it it, you don't need inflation for inflation to become a problem. You need the fear and the expectation of inflation, and everywhere I look through the commodity space, I see signs that after an extraordinarily long, grinding bear market, commodities are acting. In a way that
1: the genie, the, 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 the genie out, the genie's out of the bottle now.
2: It feels that way, and and, and as I said, it, you you can you can look at all kinds of very constructive charts about commodities, and and given how far the ratio of commodities to the S and P 500, for example, has gone in one direction, making that bet that it will reverse, you you wouldn't have been wrong at any point in the last couple of hundred years. So that's a bet. With a skew to it that you can take on and think well look if i'm wrong i i would have only been wrong this one time in the last 200 years and as long as my my time frame isn't next week i'm okay with that i'm okay with being wrong you know we should all be okay with being wrong for a while because no one ever you know one guy gets the bottom and one guy gets the top that's that's how markets work uh so you know, trying to to pick those is is a fool's errand trying to spot secular trend changes is a much better way to to position yourself correctly for moves that you can just sit back and ride.
0: Looking at the oil price when coronavirus hit, um, we discussed on the podcast that we thought it was too valuable a commodity for it to stay low, but economic activity being what it was and still is, it, you couldn't really see why it would go up, but it has gone up a lot. I sometimes wonder whether people are just turning oil into Bitcoin and that's why it will always stay, um, you know, a valuable commodity while cryptocurrencies are being um, mined and, and using tons of power. But if you look more broadly, and just to reinforce the point you're making, pre- base metals like copper and and um, and and say you know nickel, etc., especially copper, have been pushing into all time recent all time highs, multi year highs. This is not a picture of, well, is it a picture of economic activity or is this a picture of inflation? And we were talking earlier about the roles of the central banks and how they will keep inflation or sorry, how they'll just keep the markets, um, money pumping into the system. And there may not be any effect to that because they can control the markets, but my concern is that they'll lose control of the long end of the market. And if you look at where we sit today, we are actually seeing that starting to turn. And I've looked at short Sterling, the short Sterling contracts over the next couple of years, and they're pointing to an interest rate rise. Now to my mind, and obviously I'm a chartist, So I look at these things ahead of the market, discussing them. That's yeah. telling me there's more, much more chance of interest rates going up, um, in the next couple of years than the market is really paying attention to. So that's got to come from either an inflationary boom where they're forced to raise interest rates or um, economic activity just rebounds with all the stimulus. And, and uh, actually we, we get a very hot running economy, like you say.
2: Yeah. I, I you know, uh, again, James Aitken in that podcast touched on the oil market. And, and, and you know, if you think about, what oil's done? I mean, the all-time high of oil was what 140 odd dollars. Yeah, um, given that ex- given that extraordinary period we saw last year where oil went negative, oil has is hundred dollars off its low of minus forty dollars. Right? <laughs> it's, it's it's climbed a hundred dollars in the last six months, um, and you know, and James talked about this in the podcast, and James is very well plugged into these things, and he, he yeah you know, he said to anyone. In the oil market, and he he's deeply into the oil market, uh, there was a big sovereign hedging their oil exposure for 2021, a big sovereign. And that was the reason behind a lot of the the, the strength in the oil market. And you know, that tells me that somebody out there at a sovereign level, a meaningful sovereign level, is worried about inflationary pressure on their single most important imported commodity. Um and, and and I think you're absolutely right, Paul. I, I think the the expectations for inflation are far lower than perhaps they ought to be. And what tends to happen with inflationary expectations is you get this moment in time where all of a sudden the expectations catch up to the reality. And those are very scary times because they, they lead to all kinds of dislocations. And given the fact that that inflation has only really been something to worry about for what ten years in the last hundred, really? How many people are prepared for the return of inflation? How many of them see it as any kind of clear and present danger, uh, and don't view any inflationary threat as as either transigent or or an opportunity? to put the deflation trade back on full force. I would argue uh, the answers to those questions are fairly self-evident.
0: We've got a question from a listener who knew you were coming on the show and wanted to ask this. I, th- I think this is a great question um, from Just G. What practical steps do you take to avoid your cognitive biases with the markets?
2: Uh, well, I, I think we, we touched on that at the very beginning i think it's so important to engage with people that that hold different views to you i think it's really really important um and and for me you know i all, all the interviews i've done over the last number of years you know, i've done hundreds of interviews over the last number of years and i always when i was um at real vision i, I always would would joke with people i was deadly serious they thought it was a joke that if if in an hour-long interview uh, I, I spoke for more than five minutes of it, I, I didn't think I'd done a very good job. You know, my, my role there was to, was to ask questions, and I was asking the questions that, that I wanted answers to. And, and hopefully I was the proxy for the audience who, who, would, who would be thinking, you know, ask that question, and hopefully yeah. I picked the right ones. So I, I think for me to avoid your c- cognitive biases, constantly ask questions. Constantly seek out the the, the people that you, that you disagree with. Um, and I know at this point all the Bitcoin people are going to be jumping all over this. But I, I'm not saying I disagree with the Bitcoin thing. I'm just saying I don't have the time or the energy to invest enough into it. I, you know, I have people who I respect tremendously who are all in on Bitcoin. So I know that these are people with great intellects who've done an awful lot of work. And, is, and that's fine. It's just it's just not for me. So I'm I'm gonna kind of carve out Bitcoin from that. But you know, the, the the inflation thing, my base case is inflation, but I spend as much time as I can talking to Steph Pomboy, who still believes deflation is a problem, and Dave Rosenberg, who thinks similarly, and Lacey Hunt, who thinks similarly. Because by talking to them uh and and trying to avoid the 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 great dopamine hit of confirmation from smart people that, oh you yeah, know so and so smart he thinks inflation's the next problem that makes me smart um I think is 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 the very least you can do uh, and then again you know we spoke about Tim and I know you you're like me a huge student of history I read all the history I can get my hands on about not just finance but but humanity you know because you you, you we tend to boil markets down to charts, and again, I, I've spoken about this before. But, but to me, uh, a chart is just the manifestation of human emotion. It's nothing more than that. When you look at a chart, to me, all I can see is the emotional responses of everybody in that market at a given time. Absolutely. So, under so understanding how human emotion works, understanding the herd mentality, understanding what it means to to stand apart, um, and and consider things. In 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 isolation and consider things on your own without needing the confirmation of the crowd and the, the comfort of being around people who can pat you on the back and say you know yeah I think you're right. Stepping away and 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 contemplating sticky problems and coming to your own conclusions and then going to stress test them is another I think really important way to to avoid doing that.
1: It's really weird, isn't it, that we accept that the price is the price, and there's something slightly magical about the fact that the price is some a, a point at which both a seller and a buyer think they're doing the right thing. Yeah, right. And yet, no and one's the other buyer's doing the wrong thing. Yeah. And yet, no one's willing to accept an opinion that's different from theirs. Right, so there's a right. there's a perversity to that.
0: Yes, you're absolutely right. I hadn't thought of it that way, but you're absolutely right. But you find that the the best traders are also the ones who are willing. To change their view, change their mind. That that's that is consistent. And then they're never like you also said this at the top of the show, Grant. That anybody who thinks that they know it all, then you know that that's it. That's when you that's when you give up because nobody ever does. That's why we're where the age we are, and we're still asking the questions. You know, the, nobody ever knows everything. So you have to assume there's something you haven't thought of, and that's also why I use charts because. The main assumption of using charts to to sort of predict where the markets are going to go is that you don't know anything at all. You just sort of chuck yeah. everything out and you just say, look, I have no idea, but what I can tell you is, you know, this this is moving up very quickly. So this is telling me people are piling into it. Or there is some movements in, in this contract that goes out a couple of years That is looking like interest rates might go up to half a percent or maybe 0.75 that doesn't make any sense but yeah. you know but then by the time we get there it will make sense because the markets are forward looking and perhaps people much more smarter than me are already taking positions um and in in the same way as people who are investing in GameStop before it exploded higher so I'm always assuming that people know more than me
1: to be um, fair, though, Paul, some of us are always asking questions because they've got terrible memories.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know,
2: Paul, what you said there about people knowing nothing, yeah, it's really interesting. Let, let, let's go back to that example of oil uh, last year. You know, if you'd have taken the most experienced oil traders in the world and lined 100 of them up the day the oil price hit zero and said, right, gun to your head, on a 48-hour view, do you buy or sell oil here? How mm. many of them would have said sell?
0: Yes. Yes, absolutely. Right? Absolutely. And
2: and I mean, there would have been at least one guy who would have thought, yeah, it's going to go negative. But the other 99 would have been wrong. And these are experienced traders because things can happen that you don't expect and make no sense in the short
1: but term. To, to be fair, that's a particular characteristic of the commodities market. Oh, no, true, 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 true. Oh, no, well, no, you it no. Moves in commodities that you could never get in the bond market necessarily, or even stocks. But well, a move of, for example, $40 oil, that's 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 a particularly commodity market-centric type phenomenon. You just wouldn't see something quite like that. You wouldn't see. Well, you, Tim,
2: Tim, You'd, you'd, you'd say, get negative you'd interest rates. I was going to say, you'd say that, and here we are with $18 that's, trillion yes, dollars of negative that's, interest that's, rate that's bonds. That's
1: true. I'm just saying, so, it, so it's it's a phenomenon that you you te- I tend to associate more with the commodity sector. Because, no, no, absolutely. For example, no, you get something like points. sugar goes up by three hundred percent in six months or whatever, in a way that you wouldn't associate with something like fixed income or you know yeah. or or a sort of large cap stocks or something.
2: Yeah, no, no, no. Look, you're absolutely right. I'm I'm just saying that a at at moment in time where something but, seems absolutely impossible, um, it isn't.
1: But in this looking glass world, we all have to accept that there's you know, six impossible things before breakfast. So. But that's yeah, that's yeah.
0: to be fair. That's always been the case about markets. It's just it's just the realization of it. I mean, because going back to the '90s, you know, and seeing how the the euro was put together and all the crises that preceded it, we we hadn't had a crash since '87. And I remember, you know, people not not knowing in 2000 that we we're in a bubble because they'd not really seen one. So the previous bubble was '87, and the biggest previous bubble was nineteen twenty nine. So nobody had any experience of it. But then since then, we've had experiences of lots of bubbles. Um, you know, we we've had obviously the dot com, we've had the um uh the, the oil price boom, we've had you know the the there was one in wheat, um, and then then we've had obviously potentially, if this is a bubble, but I'm not saying it is either, by the way, but we've got potentially the the um the tech stocks and Bitcoin. So it, it's incredible how many times we've seen this happen. And and I remember talking in the 90s to people about how at one point Swiss interest rates had gone negative and that you could never discount the fact that interest rates would go negative. And I was teaching a course in the city um, and one of the guys was, uh, an, is, uh, was a Swiss uh, analyst. And we would, I was just saying, look, you, you can never say never about any product at all and um it was at that point that the we were looking at a chart of the 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 swiss airline and it went bust and he was like yeah. i never would have thought that would have happened and it just collapsed to zero and he said i would have said that was impossible and i was like well that's the whole point about what you're dealing with it's like when people pile into markets at any point you you do it knowing that anything is possible you it could go to zero it could explode to the upside but you you can't just just pile into something because you've read a tweet or because Elon Musk thinks it's good or what have you. You've got to say to yourself, where can this realistically go, and w- how will it hurt me if it does that? Um, and focus more on how the markets can hurt you than than actually just focusing on how much you make money.
2: Well, well, this is really interesting, uh, Paul. Because if, if you if you think about that, you know, w- this idea that things can't happen. Um, is, is a really important one because, because people just don't believe in those things. And the biggest problem we have, I think, today is that you go back to 87. Since 87, more and more people have become conditioned over time to to not fear the 1929 type event because every time there's a crash, there's a bailout. And bailouts always work, so that that's the reinforcement to me that's most dangerous because you know the bailout in eighty seven worked. I mean, we'll all remember that as a short, fairly sharp shock to the system. Um, the, the the tech bubble bursting obviously crushed the Nasdaq for for I forget how many fifteen years until it got back to its old high again, more maybe, um, but. But we had, you know, the recession in two thousand and one, and but but markets recovered. Um, but interest rates were flawed. Every, you know, everything was done to to save that. We saw the same in two thousand eight, and then we saw the same in twenty eighteen. You know, when we had, uh, let's face it, a blip in the market after after the Fed had tried to tighten. We had that that December twenty eighteen when the market crapped the bed and was down twenty percent which isn't a crash. Let's face it. It's not a crash. No matter what you want to call it, it's not a crash. Now, could it have turned into a crash? Potentially. Potentially. But should the Fed be be turning around and doing what they've done at down 20% in a market that had already risen so far that I think that 20% correction you know, took a year out of the markets, maybe? Maybe. Um, or should they wait? for the market to correct to a longer-term trend line, which would also be perfectly reasonable on a chart and and a longer-term trend line correction from where we are now. Paul, you're the chartist, but I would suggest it's probably 40% below where we are right now. Would that be such a bad thing? I mean, obviously, in the short term, for everybody who piled in, yes. In the long term, allowing markets to clear and, and giving people the opportunity to employ those things we talked about earlier in the podcast and buy stocks that they were comfortable holding for the next 20 years instead of the next 20 minutes, I would argue is a much better stabilizing device than don't worry, lads, we've got your back. We're going to bail everybody out. I, I just think that reinforces that short-term
0: behavior. Absolutely. What What do you think of the euro and currencies in general?
2: Well, I, 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 I think... They're all as bad as each other, pretty much. I mean, I'm, 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 look, I'm amazed the euro has, frankly, held together as long as it has. I mean, amazed at it, which, which I think speaks to the desperation with which uh, the, the architects of the euro and their ilk and their and their successors cling to this idea that the euro represents the success or failure of their entire lives and careers. Um, does the euro make sense? excuse me, does the euro make sense in an ordinarily functioning world for half the people who have it as their national currency? Of course it doesn't. Of course it doesn't. Did it make sense at the very beginning when it allowed them to uh, reduce the interest rates they had to pay people with their sovereign debt on day one? Of course it did. So there was a point in time where the euro was a fantastic construct for just about everybody in the EU. But I think those days are long, long gone, and and it now is an enormous ball and chain around the ankles of people um, who really don't need to be shackled like that. It's, it's you know the, the Draghi's resurgence and reemergence in Italy is a very interesting moment in time. I suspect because here is a country that is one would have to observe been desperately keen. To perhaps find a way to get out of the euro, and who do they have now uh, in the hot seat? But the guy who did everything he could to keep it together. Now, is that a political appointment? Thinking, well, if we don't have Draghi in there, they could leave the euro. Maybe he—he's the guy who can hold them in there. I don't know, but I find it very, very interesting that Draghi has appeared at this particular moment in time. Yes, I do you have it. a
1: do you have a view about Japan right now?
2: Oh, man, what can you say about Japan? I mean, you know, I, I, I lived yeah. there for four years, a long, long time ago. I I love Japan. Love love Japan. Says, I, think as far as most, I think,
1: as far as most foreign investors are concerned, Japan is the market that fell off the ugly tree. Managed to hit every branch and twig on the way down. <laughs>
2: it it <laughs> did. It did, and th- and then it got trampled
1: on by a bunch of elephants. And then the tree fell on it, and then <laughs> exactly it fell right. into a fell into a, sort of a, a subterranean cave. They yeah, got hit by a meteor. poured acid into the cave. <laughs> exactly, right. but and then there's an earthquake and a volcano.
2: But look, very quietly in dollar terms, it's back, back to its all-time it highs, yeah. right? Which is, which is, which is interesting. I think it's really interesting because, you know, Japan. Uh, I was going to say is not a country that's going away unless the demographics change. It absolutely is at some point. Um, but uh, but Japan, I, I think, is is actually a very interesting place uh, and has been for the last year, to to put money to work. I mean, you you have problems that that. Japan faces for sure, but you also have world-leading companies there in, in all kinds of sectors, um, and and I think the world is still very much underweight Japan, and, and so f- for a for a first-world economy, first-rate economy like Japan, forget what the Bank of Japan is doing because I think at this point we have to forget what the Bank of Japan is doing, but on a again on a value investor on a stock picking basis. I think Japan is one of those rare opportunities that you can find in the equity markets right now.
0: We um, have a a few listeners who are interested in the fact that money without health is really not worth it. What do you do to stay fit and healthy, both mentally and physically?
1: Disappointing PGA golf.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly right. Exactly right. Well, one could argue that I'm – I'm healthy in
2: neither regard, but I'll I'll humour <laughs> I'll, I'll, humor, I'll humor the question. How's that? Um, I, I think I think mentally, just be engaged and, and don't be engaged in the latest cat video in your social media feed, but be engaged in in the world and what's going on in the world. I mean, for me, that's the world of finance, but but you know also the world of politics, the world of news. I, you know, I read voraciously. I, I it, it's it's not often these days that I read books just for for fun right I mean I, I tend to read stuff that I think will will inform me better rather than entertain me although I every now and again I manage to squeeze one of those in um I, I think for I, I've I've found under lockdown that I've I've managed to eat much healthier because my lifestyle before lockdown was was extremely peripatetic i was on planes all the time i was you know grabbing burgers in airports while i was running to a plane and you know, arriving late into cities and ordering something to eat because i'd eaten all day and eating at you know 11 o'clock at night before i went to bed and just very unhealthy diet and i found just through eating better and more sensibly you know, i've lost a load of weight and i feel healthier and then the single best advice i can give anybody is if you haven't got one get a dog because i um i adopted a dog under lockdown and uh I found myself walking 15,000 steps a day with a dog, which gives me the chance to, you know, listen to audiobooks and listen to podcasts and think and do all kinds You've of things.
1: You've got a really talented dog. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I, I mean, yes, I have. But uh, and, and he's officially well, what, what, the greatest what's he dog in what's the world.
1: What's he called? What's he called? Mac. And what, Mac? What, and what is he?
2: Well, he's, he's a rescue dog. He's a, he's a mutt. He, he, he's down on, the, on his uh, doggy passport as a Labrador whippet mix, which I find highly spurious. It's like, it's like, it's like you saying that you're, uh, you were born in uh, 1984, Tim. Yeah. It's, about, it's about as believable. But, um, <laughs> but, it, but it, allows me, it allows me to take him out of the country, potentially, and back into you're the country.
1: You're personally. only as old as the woman you feel, Grant.
2: Yeah, there you go.
1: <laughs> that I to here all day.
2: Yeah, so so that, that, I mean that that's been it for me. I've I've you know I I I'm not a gym rat. I don't enjoy being in the gym. I'd much rather be out walking and outside. I can't run because my knees are shot. I'll play a bit of golf. I'll go for a bike ride. But um, yeah, I, I think I, honestly, for me, being being mentally fit is right now much more important. Because yes. I think the 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 problem that you could run into by not being mentally fit right now are are, are devastating.
1: One thing I'd add to that, which is which is very much gratefully received by by me, is is simply I don't have a, a dog, but I've in lockdown in Stalag Luft, Great Britain. It has been <laughs> extraordinarily um, pleasing to enjoy time outside and basically live vicariously through other people's pets. So
2: yeah, there you, go. There you I, go. I was
1: out. I was out in Regent's Park yesterday, but I noticed that Julia Hartley Brewer had tweeted a few things about being in in Hampstead Heath and. Uh, she, there were a few photos that the press have reported here including people lots of people sitting on benches having coffee having picnics there's the one horror. photo i know that there was one photo of like about eight people having a tug of war and it was like it's <laughs> almost as if no one gives a shit about about fat blair and his meaningless pronouncements anymore we're just going back to normal weather whether whether uh, boris johnson allows us to or not
2: well do you know, do you know what's funny um so I've, I've been in the cayman islands for the pretty much the whole of lockdown um I went over to
1: London briefly last year to see
2: my granddaughter but I've been pretty much in the Cayman Islands for the, for the whole of lockdown and the Cayman Islands is covid free they they jumped on it early they shut the borders they you know we had house arrest essentially for a couple of months but they killed the disease off mm. and so there's zero covid so life is completely normal in Cayman there are no restrictions there's no masks there's no social distancing nothing um and so you, and you get this this weird sensation that, that the world outside is just some horrendous post-apocalyptic dystopian wasteland, you know? Mm. Um, and what I found, I, I've, I've finally escaped the rock to, uh, and I'm in South Carolina currently. Um, so I flew here. Uh, you know, I, 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 there are, there are very few flights that go into and out of the Cayman Islands, mostly for residents to come home or, or, or leave. Um, but upon landing in the U.S. You know, I find myself confronted with, with a country that is, there are masks in, in, in grocery stores and what have you, and there is social distancing being advised. But w- what, I'm, what I'm seeing around me, interestingly, is for the most part, and, I, and I'm in Charleston, South Carolina, I'm not in some great party hotspot where I'm sure things are different, but I'm seeing people being sensible right they they're all wearing the masks when they need to in public and in in close proximity but they're staying away but they're when they're outside walking they're not wearing masks and you know it, it, life is going on i mean and, and and life has to and will go on so you know i hope that some some semblance of common sense can can be instilled and i, and I hope that there's a way for people to be allowed to get back to their lives because God knows, it's been it's been an awful year uh, under lockdown, and most importantly, Tim, I want to I want to get back to the UK to see my new granddaughter, who's going to be mm. born in about ten days, um, and of course have lunch with you two fine gents if we can. Oh, do that's, it. Oh, that's
1: very, much, very much on the cards. Well, I've just found a, a fantastic new Twitter friend called Protect NHS. The uh, handle is at JGB Jab. Uh, who's just tweeted face masks on enough to slow the spread One hundred thirty thousand plus people have died already so it's time for more drastic measures you can get this hazmat suit on amazon for less than 20 quid please wear it every time you step outside hashtag lockdown four and i felt obligated to respond anyone wearing less than three hazmat suits is being frankly murderously selfish (laughs) hashtag wear more than three hazmat suits
2: Uh, dear. So you know what, Tim? If you didn't invent well, it didn't exist, we'd have to invent you.
0: <laughs> Brilliant. Grant, look, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. And, media
1: picks, media picks.
0: And before we go, I'd just like to ask what your media picks are, because of course you read a lot. So My media I'm picks, sure yes. there's gonna be some gems in there.
2: I, I have I have some for you. I've 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 been thinking about this. Brilliant. Um I've got, uh, well, I, I, we've already talked about those two books on inflation, which I absolutely think people should download the PDFs. Um, and again, it's Jens O. Parsons uh, with three S's, two in the middle and one at the end, um, The Dying of Money, and Adam Ferguson, When Money Dies. I think those two books are extraordinary reading. Um, I, I'll give you a couple of books I've read for pleasure. Uh, the first one being the new Malcolm Gladwell book, um, Talking to Strangers. Uh, it, I actually listened to the audio book, which is exceptional. Um,
1: is that is that uh, narrated by him?
2: Narrated by him, and and it's kind of an immersive experience. It, it's how audiobooks should be, because it, it, you know the interviews is conducted for the for the book. He actually plays you the tape of the interviews, and they have actors doing court transcripts and stuff. It's it's really really well done, and Fantastic. it's a fascinating book. And and his podcast Revisionist History, if you haven't listened to it. um, is absolutely wonderful, so I, I can't recommend those highly enough. Another book that I that I read last year, um, which again I can't recommend highly enough, is A Gentleman in Moscow. Tim, I'm sure you'll have read that, and if you haven't, you will thank me for for recommending it. It's um it's a just the most wonderfully written story of uh, a post Bolshevik Revolution count confined to a hotel in in Russia. Oh, sounds uh, fantastic. It, uh, but the the the, the the way this book is written, the prose is absolutely beautiful. It's called *Gentlemen in Moscow. It's written by a guy called Amor Towles, T-O-W-L-E-S. And I, I've i said this before, but I literally, when I finished it, I turned the last page and I turned back to the first page and started reading it again. Wow, fabulous. It, it's such a wonderful book. And then um, uh, if you want something a bit darker than that,
0: yeah, I just, yeah, yeah, yeah. I just
2: finished watching a, a, a fantastic series on um, – amazon prime called zero 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 i think it's on sky atlantic maybe in in the uk
1: that's my pin number <laughs>
2: <laughs> and your iq that's um but no zero 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 it's it's a it's a like a three-pronged story about a drug shipment that's based in italy mexico and the us it's just brilliantly made very very dark but but hugely enjoyable and then the last one i'll give you is um i just watched the the most recent David Attenborough series. Uh, I think it's called A Perfect Planet. Oh, yes. and, uh, and whilst they're, they're, you know, Uncle Dave has has tended towards the preachy a little bit in recent series, um, there wasn't so much of that here. And I have to say the the extraordinary advances in camera technology drones and the use of drones footage, it. It, 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 I've loved every single series he's done since I was a little kid and first of all, The Trials of Life. This is taking this filmmaking to a whole new level. It is breathtaking, and I, and I cannot recommend it highly enough.
0: Superb. Tim, what about yours?
1: I, I, we've covered a lot of material today, and I'm grateful to Grant for have, having helped us on that on that journey. It's been a bit grim, though. So in, a, in, a, in, a, in a, an attempt to try and lift people's spirits, I'm going to cite um, something that was originally on Radio 4 and then went on to BBC TV, uh, and it's a TV, radio, and and also sequence of books incorporating a character called Bob Servant Independent. Uh, Bob <laughs> Ser- Bob Servant is basically an ind- standing as an independent in the Scottish constituency of Broughty Ferry. And he's played by Brian Cox, uh, who's the Brian Cox that isn't the guy who flies helicopters into space, who is a twat. He's, he's a twat, but he's not the helicopters in space twat. And basically, Bob Servant is the most fabulous comic creation known to humanity. Um, so you can find TV series about it on, on Prime, Amazon Prime. This is
2: great. I've just, I've, just, I've just made it out of that.
1: I can't wait. But basically, uh, I bought my fiancée a Bob Servant book for Christmas, or for her birthday, rather. And I've now bought another two. I'm getting them in uh, secondhand because I'm not sure they're easy to, to pick up in the original. But you can buy them secondhand for, for fairly cheaply. But basically, the character is Bob Servant. And very few things will make I think one of the reviews actually on the on the 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 book cover is basically, "This made me wet myself." Uh, <laughs> it, is, it is that funny uh, i I can't even begin to describe the character except he 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 basically is a, he runs a burger van in in Broughty Ferry and has messianic delusions of relevance, but he's a, absolutely top class, top spank pant wettingly funny creation Oh, this is um, marvelous so bob's Bob servant is is the thing to, to to track down and on a more serious note uh i've now started getting into the second series of uh yellowstone which is a kind of modern day cowboy drama with kevin costner set in montana and it is just awesome and that, that's that's yes. much I, more. I've ma-
2: watched that. That's that's very good. I can I can endorse that recommendation. And that's it's that's
1: excellent. it's macho and all that stuff, but it's it's just great entertainment. And again, uh, Grant mentioned the sort of visuals on the Attenborough stuff, which I haven't yet seen. But you know, uh, he's absolutely right. The 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 the, the 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 photogenic, the cinematic quality of of media now is just awe inspiring. So you know, it's a bit like sort of lockdown porn. You can see what wide open spaces look like if you've forgotten what they look like.
0: Yeah, Blue Planet Two is <laughs> yeah, right. just absolutely amazing i'm i'm gonna abstain for this week because uh i think there's so many there i, d- I just don't want to overload people but uh, absolutely fantastic recommendations before you go grant how can people get in touch with you where Where do they find you if they want more grant williams uh
2: well i, I physically i'm in south carolina at the moment um, <laughs> and i will be here for a while but um i've just i actually just re finally got round to revamping my website so I've, I've finally got a website that i'm happy giving out the address because the old one was awful it looks um, brilliant so you can find you can find everything uh, at grant williams.com <clears throat> excuse me you can find the podcast you can find my letter and um you'll also find a bunch of uh, my presentations that i've finally got in in one place if you want to watch any of those and the only social media i'm on is twitter uh you'll find me at ttmygh
0: superb will you tweet some pictures of your dog please
2: i will i absolutely will he's a he's an absolute legend
0: absolutely fantastic thank you once again it's been such a pleasure all very best we've got to have you back on the show if if you would like to some point in the future because i'm sure we've got more to talk about in the uh, months and, and uh, years years to come so it would be great to have you back on if that would be possible
2: any time, have I've loved every second of it. And hopefully, if I do manage to get to the UK to see my new granddaughter, we can we can have a, a socially distanced lunch. That
1: would be super. I'll hard. bring the hazmat suit. <laughs> Good, <laughs> Jimmy. You'll need nine, obviously. <laughs> yes. Oh, absolutely. Right. Okay.
0: Excellent, Grant. Thank you so much. All Thanks, the very best. Take care. Take care. Cheers, Bye. Grant.
2: Bye. Bye.
0: And thank you so much for listening. And we'll catch you next time. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.